Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. <clears throat> Excuse me, Robert Larson. And uh, yeah, this is our February 16th, 2012 edition of the show. 4.08 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, I have a uh, couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. If you had some concerns about corruption within the pharmaceutical industrial complex, those concerns will turn to alarm when you read Blood Feud, the men, the man who blew the whistle on one of the deadliest prescription drugs ever. Payola, bilking of taxpayers for billions, and horrible deaths are some of the facts laid bare in this startling book. A few months ago, we had author Kathleen Sharp with us to discuss this remarkable story. She's back with us today to share some updates on the saga. Kathleen is a uh, journalist who has written for the New York Times Magazine, Parade, Elle, and Fortune. She has appeared in and consulted on film documentaries and won several awards, including a first-place prize for investigative reporting from the Society of Professional Journalists. Kathleen Sharp, uh, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, It's great to have you. As I said last time you were on the show, uh, this book is is masterfully written, thoroughly engaging, riveting. Uh, You really make us care about this whistleblower and the the tragic drama that unfolds. For those who who didn't catch our last talk, if we could recap a bit. This is the story of Mark Duxbury, a, a charming and wildly successful sales rep for Ortho, a division of Johnson & Johnson, he was selling Procrit, a sort of blood booster type of drug, and because he had the audacity to tell the truth about some illegal, unethical, and deadly activities related to this drug, drug Ortho made his life a living hell. But he fights back. And that's the basic gist, right? Right, yeah. And he, uh, he actually was, in my uh, the reason I continue doing this story is more because he was so uplifting. You know, he had this wonderful wit and uh, um, indefatigable spirit that um, kind of made you, or at least made me laugh at, at different parts because he really was a David going up against a Goliath and uh, kind of didn't, didn't care after a while what really happened to him as long as he could tackle this huge giant. Yeah, and you you got obviously got to know him quite well, and and it it comes through, and and like I said, you just really you really feel for this character. You and and as I said last time you were on the show, I said you know, this story is just so amazing. Somebody's got to make a movie of this. <laughs> what can you tell us about that? Well, evidently someone was listening to you, Robert, because uh, we had um, HBO interested in uh, doing something, but we uh, settled on uh, going with New Regency, which uh, some of your uh, listeners may remember as a uh, a wonderful film studio that produces about 12 films a year and is uh, 20% owned by uh, 20th Century Fox. So um, 
it's kind of exciting right now because what you and I talked about a few months ago with the, you know, race against the clock that Mark Duxbury and his best friend uh, were engaged in really uh, struck quite a few people in the film community. And so what I'm real excited about, though, is that we get to tell this sort of larger, what could be a very wonky story about healthcare and pharmaceutical fraud to a huge audience that, um, you know, in the style of something like L.A. Confidential or Heat or um, even Tower Heist. In fact, the two screenwriters who are working on this, um, adapting this film, uh, indeed did uh, develop the story for Tower Heist, two great guys by the name of Adam Cooper and Bill Collage. So that's quite exciting to be able to, you know, for them and for me, to be able to work on a really um, kind of significant story that touches every American, but be able to put it up on the big screen. Yeah, congratulations on that. This is well-deserved, well and I look forward to this, and I know there's the whole development process, and it takes a while, but hopefully it won't be too long before we see this on the screen. And it, the story also involves... Um, Jan Schlickman, who is an attorney who's already been featured in an, another film with starring John Travolta, uh, A Civil Action? Right, that's right. Uh, that was an Oscar-nominated film uh, back in 1999 and based on another great book, A Civil Action. Uh, and uh, Jan, is, uh, I think we left off when we were talking about how Jan Schlickman was so disheartened in the aftermath of A Civil Action. You know, here he went up against two corporate giants, Beatrice Foods and Grace, in order to try and bring justice to families who had lost children through the pollution of waters in a very small town in Massachusetts. And that case nearly broke Jan, both financially and emotionally, but um, he's resurfaced in this wonderful tale, you know, that Mark Duxbury has um, sort of taken the um, horns by, and uh, Mark had contacted Jan and asked if he'd be interested in, uh, in at least taking a look at his case, and Jan felt the old fire rising in his belly, and he agreed to take on this case back in 2006. So, um, you know, I don't think Jan realized what he was in for, because just in December, what, maybe six weeks ago, I was back in Boston anticipating to see Jan and J&J's attorneys sort of face off in court. But uh, that uh, hearing was um, canceled, and we're still waiting for the judge to rule whether or not Mark Duxbury's lawsuit on behalf of all Medicare, all, all of his taxpayers, can move ahead in court or whether it will die. So, um, you know, this whole story of being a whistleblower is incredibly difficult and there's lots of money at stake and lots of lives. And, of course, Johnson & Johnson engages the best, you know, most expensive attorneys that they can to prevent this case from going out into the public dockets. Yeah, we're, we're talking about billions of dollars involved here, hundreds of billions, actually. And so that, uh, that changes the way things operate. And the most expensive in attorneys get involved and people do things that... They wouldn't otherwise do if it was just hundreds of dollars involved instead of hundreds <laughs> right. of billions. Uh, yeah. So it, it, people yeah. get corrupted. Right, and I think you know, it helps just to take a step back here and look at the drug that we're talking about. Um, it's uh, gone, it, The brand name is called Procrit, and it's marketed by Johnson Johnson and its partner, Amgen. But Amgen is actually the one that um, sort of invented this drug, if you will, which is basically... 
it mimics the body's own hormone to multiply red blood cells. So anemic people don't have to go get a blood transfusion. They can simply take an injection of this drug, and they can undergo chemotherapy, or they can go through their dialysis. Um, and it, you know, at one point, it was even used on children uh, in experimental ways. But what Johnson Johnson nor Amgen told us is that this drug also multiplies your red blood cells and turns your blood so very thick like sludge that you can suffer heart attacks or strokes. And yet you and I and other millions of taxpayers have paid probably about $80 billion uh, for this drug over the last 20 years, underwriting, you know, essentially death to um, at least 17% of the many, many millions of people who have taken this drug. So that's what the whole case is about. The whistleblower case is trying to get um, Johnson & Johnson, and there's another case going on with Amgen, but trying to get them to cough up all of the money that they defrauded taxpayers from by illegal, um, allegedly illegal marketing uh, ploys. Mm-hmm. So the the main things that, that were involved here, that, as far as Mark Duxbury becoming a whistleblower, the first thing he told the truth about was ortho not honoring their product licensing agreement with Amgen, and then uh, the developer of the drug. Then he got into how ortho was facilitating and encouraging Medicare fraud and ultimately got into how they were promoting as safe and effective and off-label high-dose treatment for which there wasn't data indicating its safety and effectiveness. That those are exactly. the basic three uh, things that are going on here that were done, uh, that were extremely unethical and uh, illegal, most likely. And uh, mm-hmm. they're, uh, it's, uh, wow, you know, I have we, to say. We paid for them. <laughs> yeah, and that you just brought up that point of, of the, it's not a matter of, well, Johnson & Johnson and their subsidiary, ortho or just developing and selling a drug and people were just buying it and it's just all the free market and let the chips fall where they may it it, it involves the government it involves we uh it involves us the taxpayers and it's when you have medicare involved and so we are all um sort of as you said underwriting something that turns out is actually deadly and certainly the way that it, it was being used and uh, so could you go into a little more detail of how uh, Mark Duxbury kind of uh, be- became the whistleblower? Well, he um, was sort of roped into this and initially. And the way he was roped in is that you were right. He was told to break, you know, the uh, agreement that J&J and its division ortho had with Amgen. And he felt very uncomfortable about that. But You know, he was only supposed to sell to cancer, chemotherapy patients and doctors, and instead he began to sell to dialysis. Now, that in itself didn't seem like a big deal. But during this arbitration, which is sort of like a private court proceeding, he also let slip that as a J&J rep, he would give free product to the doctors and knowing that they would probably bill Medicare or other insurance companies at the full sticker price. So that began to really get into, um, you know, illegal waters, and that um, potentially could hurt not just J&J, but Amgen. So that court case, however, remained in private closed doors so that neither patients nor um, uh, consumers or shareholders of the two companies knew about this 
a very common but illegal scenario. But then he began, once his, um, a few years down the road, he saw that J&J was actually gunning the needle on patients. They were promoting high doses, which you could call overdoses, which is really shocking. I mean, how um, totally immoral do you have to be to go ahead and push overdoses of a drug that have never really been tested for safety under any dosage? And Mark was so concerned about this, he jokingly told his boss in a cocktail party, huh, I bet the FDA would love to hear about this promotion. And that was really the beginning of his end. Um, and then what he was um, subjected to was sort of this gloveless torture that mm-hmm. corporations, some corporations can really um, be very skilled at. And he was slowly driven uh, to a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. And then he himself was given a cocktail of drugs by um, his doctor and paid for by his insurance company under J&J. And it really, he started hearing voices. He started having hallucinations. And it almost broke him, but... You know, there was this one indefinable sort of trait that Mark had, and he continued to fight. He got better, and he went on to file this uh, several lawsuits, actually, against J&J to try and stop the practice that they were uh, spreading nationally. Yeah, the story of, of yeah, what they did to Mark Duxbury, it, it really it is so heartbreaking. And You're reading this, and you just are... I mean, there were times that I was almost getting tears in my eyes, and you just are like that, you know, that they would do this to a person that that all he was doing was telling the truth, and that it was um, there. Like I said earlier, there's so when you have this many billions of dollars involved, people just um, ethics sort of go out the window. Well, and it's, you know, it's interesting because I, I tried to really wrestle with this, and it wasn't just one person, but one after one and one after another. And I think what happens is that sometimes, especially in a sales culture, where these men and women are going out on the road alone, you know, and every week they're trying to sell their drug to very unfriendly people, doctors who don't want them in the office or nurses who... Uh, you know, are loyal to the um, competition. And so these men and women really feel isolated and they're alone, they're away from their family and friends. But every quarter, the corporation throws a huge sort of sales meeting that is almost a, you know, a huge bacchanal party too and where there's drinking and wonderful food and and jokes and music late at night and during the day, you know, there's intense uh, work sessions. So these people bond with one another very, very intensely. And once Mark was shunned by first one boss and then another, he was sort of let out of the herd. And being a very gregarious guy, um, you know, this really kind of cut him to the quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and But his saving grace was his good buddy, uh, Dean McClellan, right. who was kind of a cowboy figure down in Arizona. And even though Mark was up in the uh, you know, Seattle, Washington, these two men became very, very close. And I think without Dean, Mark really would have gone crazy, but at least Dean listened to him and knew what he was going through. And then he eventually joined him in this whistleblowing suit. Right. So, I mean, Dean is is every much the whistleblower that that Mark is, uh, but Mark, you know, was the one who initiated and was involved in this for much longer. But eventually, uh, Dean came along. I kind of <laughs> see him more the the Han Solo type of character that sort of uh, dragged along, <laughs> you know. And very then, well said. Yeah, yeah, he was very. And then, but, Han but becomes Solo. yeah, but you know, it's uh, 
the uh, yeah, it, it is like I said, it, it's so emotional. I, I you know, I just it brings you know tears to your eyes at certain points. But I mean, at, at other times, I'm reading this, it's just bringing tears of rage. I mean, I, I I'm just is so uh, it's so disturbing. And and one of the things that struck me and that you tell so well in the story is that as Mark Duxbury is being uh, pushed out, and it's like they keep trumping up these different charges against him, and they keep moving the goalposts on his, you know, his sales goals to make him look bad, and they keep bringing in different managers. And, and, I, and I've been in the corporate world, and I've seen this happen before, not to this such an extreme degree, but you see where it's coming down from the top, and all these sort of mid-level managers, they are told, here's what's going on, and here's what you're going to do, and nobody questions it. Well, that's the thing. You know, there's, um, we all, a lot of us, I think, tend to follow the herd or do as we're told. And that's become even more apparent, I think, in the last 10 to 15 years when the economy has gotten so fragile and corporations have gone more and more to outsourcing and less and less inside. So, you know, I can understand where some of these managers felt very concerned about their own jobs, you know, and, and their own families and mortgages. But Mark was one of those guys who was willing to, you know, jeopardize everything, his house, his family. He lost his child for a while. Um, and there's very few sort of birds that are able to fly alone like that, and Mark was one of them. But it really makes you think ethically about, at least made me think, how I live in the world and, you know, what I would, how I would respond if I was asked to do that and how I do respond when I'm asked to do something that um, goes against, you know, my moral grain, and it, uh, you know, it really underscores how we do have to take a stand, and we do have to speak up, and I think so many of us feel that we don't have voices anymore, so that's why it was really kind of an honor and a pleasure to work with Mark and Dean, because God knows they sure spoke up time and time and time again. And, and that's why it's important that this book is out there, and that, it, you know, so people, uh, will become empowered and if enough people are reading this and knowing that there are things going on that aren't right and that we have power in numbers then because other people are going to back you up and and the book is blood feud the man who blew the whistle on one of the deadliest prescription drugs ever we're speaking today with kathleen sharp the author and this is kuci in irvine i'm robert larson and uh yeah i'm uh just wanted to also uh say that another thing that struck me because i've uh, come across it elsewhere was how many uh bush administration appointees to government watchdog agencies were just doing their darndest to to not enforce corporate regulations or to not prosecute corporate wrongdoers uh has that is there been any improvement in this area with Obama administration uh, appointees, or is this still still kind of operating well, this way? Yeah, you, you've picked up on something that I thought might change. And when we uh, were talking with Mark, a lot of the times that uh, the FDA was trying to actually take this drug off the market or to stop the two companies from uh, promoting it so um, you know aggressively, there was the head of the FDA chief counsel by the name of Daniel Troy, and you're right, he was appointed by George Bush, and he actually had worked before for the pharmaceutical company. So, of course, uh, 
You know, he would tell the FDA staff to back off. You know, do not tell Johnson Johnson to stop that commercial, um, you know, even though it's full of false claims. Just let them do their thing. Um, and we thought, certainly Schlickman thought and Duxbury also thought that once Obama got in power that this sort of con- conflict of interest would stop. But what happened instead is that we see another uh, pharmaceutical defense attorney by the name of Eric Holder, mm. and he steps in as chief, um, you know, chief cop as uh, the U.S. District or Attorney General. So instead of prosecuting some of these firms for uh, pharmaceutical companies, um, many people believe that he has been very light on them. And, in fact, Senator Grassley, who is sort of the uh, king of whistleblowers and defender of whistleblowers, has pointedly asked uh, Eric Holder why there aren't more um, Justice Department prosecutions of pharmaceutical companies uh, over this Medicare fraud. And so far, um, you know, we haven't seen much. Will this change? I think... You know, one of the wonderful things that I'm seeing is that people really are catching on to this, and they're starting to speak up. I think the Occupy Wall Street is a great example of that. And I think um, also now that we have something like one in six people without health insurance in this country, and almost half of our adult population is underinsured, there's a huge move for um, sort of health insurance for all, which would... um, undermine this for-profit, um, you know, motive that goes to the heart of an inefficient health care system. So that's really heartening, I think. Yeah, it uh, was, uh, you mentioned Occupy Wall Street, and somebody was asking the other day, well, what is it? What, what, what is Occupy Wall Street? What are you, you guys really saying? And, and one guy, I liked what he said. He goes, what we're about, what we are protesting is the the corporate ownership of everything in America, including our government. Yeah. And and this is what, you know, this is what you see here with this. And it's just like, well, we have these watchdog agencies, but yet they have yeah. these past ties to these groups. And then, and, yeah, the, the banking it's industry. Yeah. 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 And, yeah, and that's right. I mean, you see it so much in medicine and so-called health care. Um, you know, as you pointed out, you see it in uh, the EPA. And now we have, Mons- I mean, the chief of Monsanto, an executive, is now heading the FDA um, and uh, pushing for sort of some genetically engineered uh, fish to be on our supermarket without telling <laughs> us. Um, yeah. Enough already, enough already. And I think that's what we're hearing from our neighbors and each other. And it's really a wonderful moment. And uh, I think this book kind of speaks to that, too. Yeah. Again, it's Blood Feud, the man who blew the whistle on one of the deadliest prescription drugs ever. Kathleen Sharp, our uh, guest today, author of that book. It, uh, yeah, so you mentioned how difficult it was for... Mark Duxbury and, and Andy and McClellan as well to be whistleblowers, whistleblowers in general. What what is that like? Well, whistleblowers are a, a pretty unusual, quirky kind of guys and girls. There's a few women, um, especially lately. Um, they are the types of people that can't sleep at night if they see something that's gone wrong. Um, they can be a you know real pain in the neck, uh, and sometimes Mark and I would talk about this, but they also have a very clear vision of what's right and what's wrong. And what happens is that 
The huge number of whistleblowers that actually file a suit on behalf of taxpayers never, ever get to court um, because it's a really weird part of law. Whistleblowers have to finance their case on their own for 10, 12, 15 years, and it's hard to find an attorney who will work uh, pretty much pro bono for all that time. And in the course of that, a lot of times the whistleblowers cannot get new jobs because they've become persona non grata, and so they'll lose their house. Something like um, 80% of them lose their wives, their marriages. Another 50% of them have huge health issues, like Mark did. Um, others have nervous breakdowns, try to commit suicide, and it's really a very lonely, tough row to hoe. But for those people that are successful as whistleblowers, they stand to gain millions and hundreds of millions of dollars if their case is joined by the United States government, um, which we're still waiting to hear about Mark's case, or even if they're successful enough, you know, on their own to go up against these huge corporations without the assistance of the government. So um, there's huge gains, but more often than not, there's huge pain. Yeah, and it's, I don't think most of these whistleblowers, and I didn't feel that about Mark Duxbury in reading this book are driven by the money. I mean, sure, they, their lives are messed up and having that big payout would, would help things and turn things around, but I don't think that's what's really driving most of these people. No, I, I think you're, you're right, although we have to be honest, too. I think a lot of us human beings have complicated motivation, and Mark certainly wanted uh, to be paid for all the years of lost wages that he suffered. Mm -hmm. uh, he wanted his name cleared, but the longer and longer he hung in there, it was almost like this vendetta, this crusade that he took on. And once he discovered that something like close to half a million, a million people were dying from these high doses, that's when it became very, very personal because he realized, oh my God, you know, I worked for a company like that. You know, I pushed this drug or promoted it. And I think he felt like he had to... Um, you know, do everything that was in, in his power to stop it. And, you know, I hope I'm not blowing it, but he eventually died trying to push this rock up a hill. Yeah, it, so you say push this rock up a hill. I, I was thinking becoming a whistleblower, taking that on, I, I, I'm i thinking of the story of uh, of Sisyphus. That That's the metaphor you're using there, right? From the, the uh, right. you know. The old Greek myth, right? <laughs> <laughs> the story is told over and over, but this is a real-life story. But the thing is, is when you uh, take on the gods, and, and these big corporations in our world are the gods, y you pay well, dearly. that's right. Yeah, they, they tend to control the strings, but that's why I love the spirit between these two men, you know, Dean and Mark. I mean, at one time, one point, we're following them uh, as Mark and Dean start, and I think it, late at night, they begin to unload 15,000 documents that Dean had stashed away in his desert uh, lair. And these men spend all night uh, packing all these documents, driving them to a, a Kinko's-like place and Xeroxing them, you know, in the, under the light of the moon. And the next morning, they drive another, you know, 60 miles out to where Dean lives. They repack all of this damning evidence back neatly so that by the time Dean's bosses come, it looks as if nothing at all had been uh, disturbed. But Mark, meanwhile, is flying all of these, you know, tons and tons of material back to a, a law office in Seattle where he begins to uh, 
really go after his whistleblowing case in earnest. So these two guys were like on a road trip, gone bad. Um, you know, but they found every opportunity they could, in a way, to to take advantage of the moment, to sort of um, you know do what they could, and in a, a way, it became like a Hardy Boys adventure <laughs> because they had that spirit about them. Yeah, I could. Uh, I am so so picturing that scene. It was you uh, wrote it uh, so well, and it 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 has such a dramatic uh, flair to it. Uh, in what actually happened and the way you portrayed it, that I, <laughs> I I can see this being one of the better scenes in the movie and uh, there'll be some great uh, soundtrack uh, music uh, going along uh, to to what's happening there um but uh, yeah it's it's going to be a wonderful film so what what is the uh do you have any kind of timeline on that you just signed uh, a contract on the uh production or the rights to this yeah, movie Yeah what hap- yeah what often happens when a um a writer a book writer sells his or her uh, film rights is that it usually takes a long time for a screenwriter to get on it, and oftentimes, I'd say 80% of the time, the film never gets made, but in this case, we have really passionate screenwriters attached to it, and I think they were the ones who fell in love with the book right away, so they're writing it, and I imagine, you know, that'll take several months, and then you get to the whole, who's going to direct it, and mm-hmm. who will um, be cast, and it will be fictionalized to some extent, Sure, but... Um, you know, I just think it's one, I can't think of another uh, movie, really, that looks at the pharmaceutical industry and the healthcare uh, business as in-depth as this one probably will. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I'm thinking, you know, probably about two years, we'll, we'll see this if uh, everything, no no major problems. But it's just, uh, you know, I I, I, I don't know. I, I'm really excited about that. I, I don't get usually so excited about it, but I'm just, I'm picturing the, all these scenes. They they were so clear in my mind that I, I really want to see them on a, on a screen. And uh, it's just such a story that needs to be shared with more people, and that's one way to do it. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And it, Go ahead. Yeah, it was pretty fortunate, too, to run across these very colorful characters. And I don't think I realized how rich these guys were until I got deep in the story. But one of the elements that I think is so great is that Mark Duxbury was a very talented saxophone player. And when things would get really, you know, tough for him, he'd go out on the rooftop of his uh, Seattle area condo and he'd just you know sing his heart out and wrestle with that saxophone like it was an alligator in mud i mean he was very very talented he went to school with kenny g and actually replaced kenny g in the university of washington orchestra and um you know his stepson is now attending uh the berkeley school of music thanks in large part to mark's uh teaching so you know, when you have people like that who are not just all work, but sort of this artistic kind of quirky, very talented bent to them, it not only makes telling the story like this much easier and actually fun, but it certainly, hopefully, will make it easier for listeners and viewers to watch it, too, and to really feel what these guys are going through. Yeah. I, and again, the book is Blood Feud, The Man Who Blew the Whistle on One of the Deadliest Prescription Drugs Ever. Our guest today, Kathleen Sharp. So deadliest prescription drugs ever you said something about 10 minutes back that what an estimate of of how many people have possibly died because of this drug well scientific studies and meta studies have shown that 17 percent of all of the millions of people who took this drug have died and when we tallied it up it's conservatively about 11 million people have taken this 
So that's easily over a million people have died. Now, one of the problems in proving whether or not they've actually died from this drug is that this drug was given simply to boost the red blood cells of very sick people, those who are on dialysis or those who are getting chemotherapy. So when people would die suddenly of a heart attack, um, a lot of times the grieving uh, widow wouldn't stop and ask for an autopsy to determine whether or not that heart attack was uh, from EPO, the drug, or was from some other complication from the disease. But the astonishing thing to me is that this drug is still on the market, even though the FDA has issued its sternest warning. The FDA has also told everyone to do everything they can to stay off this drug, yet it's still selling billions of dollars a year, and you and I as taxpayers are still footing the bill. You know, right. which to me is atrocious because we're watching, um, you know, old people and poor young children being thrown off the doles or of Medicare and Medicaid because we are in a financial crisis. You know, I, I think that we should go after some of these drugs that really don't work and aren't safe and throw them off of the Medicare dole and <laughs> perhaps be more aggressive in pursuing pharmaceutical companies for the fraud. And so you mentioned that one of the things... Uh, this drug was used for was cancer chemotherapy patients, but it was not approved to give to cancer patients outside of when they were getting chemotherapy, right? That's right. And But they were right. doing it anyway. That's right. They were. They were doing it for depression, uh, postpartum depression, um, just old-fashioned fatigue. And of course, you probably remember um, a lot of the bicyclists in Tour de France were, um, and may still be for all I know, illegally uh, shooting themselves up with this blood booster because what it does is it really oxygenates the muscles so that you can really climb those alpine hills. So you had a lot of athletes, professional and uh, athletes, using it to get the edge. Um, and who knows how many of them died, uh, certainly there's been indications that several of them did die from this black market illegal use of the drug. So, so we're talking though, maybe a half million, maybe a million people have possibly died because of yes. this, and uh, it's uh, you know that's just mind-boggling, and it, it's it's it great mind-boggling, you know, especially when you think that Vioxx was taken off the market because it killed several hundred. Um, and uh, other drugs have been taken off the market because of similar numbers, and yet we have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people uh, whose lives have been endangered by this particular drug. And you might kind of sit back and say, gee, I wonder why. Um, and I can point to the fact that Johnson & Johnson and Amgen have enormous lobbying power. Um, when Obama was uh, getting ready to... Um, finished the touches on the new patient care, affordable patient care law, uh, Johnson & Johnson CEO William Weldon was one of the first guys into the uh, White House. Mm. So these are the people that really have access and kind of shape the laws, that definitely shape the laws that are supposed to be for consumers. So, yeah, let's talk about the new uh, health care law about to take effect and how that relates to all of this. Well, I think one great thing about this new health care law is that for the first time ever, we get to find out which, which of our doctors has been taking uh, pharmaceutical money or has been going on a wonderful golf trip to Scotland um, or taking other uh, free gifts uh, 
in return for prescribing a drug. Um, I don't know about you, but ever since I finished this book, I began asking my children's doctors and even my own doctors if they were, you know, had they ever participated in a, uh, a faux conference? Had they taken money from a pharmaceutical company in return for prescribing this drug? I wanted to know. And it was real interesting to see their um, reactions. Some people would turn all red and kind of harump. How dare you? And others would, you know, drop their pens, and yet others would talk to me frankly and say, well, no, actually I don't, and I wouldn't really prescribe that drug. So now for the first time, actually in 2013, in March of 2013, we'll be able to go online and put in our doctor's name and find out if he or she has taken money from Pfizer or Amgen or J&J, and we'll be able to know. And that will help us make a decision as to whether or not we should take a uh, drug, especially a drug that's been prescribed off-label, and give us a little insight as to uh, where the doctor's coming from, too. So this is one really uh, good aspect of the new health care legislation, as far as uh, yeah. you're concerned. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I was, uh, went to see my doctor a couple weeks ago, and I'm waiting in the lobby for my appointment and there's another doctor in the same office and uh there was a, i could just tell by the way they look it was a a, a sales rep from a drug company <laughs> y- you can just tell <laughs> you can yeah <laughs> and um she asked to see the doctor I, I guess she had an appointment and the doctor came up but the doctor is very busy trying to make her rounds and and i just picked up this whole vibe of like the sales rep was just really kind of uh, irritant to the to the doctor. Yeah, you know, we use this and we use that. But the the, the sales rep was kept asking her, "Well, have you been trying this for you know this application for the pain uh, uh, management? Normally they use it for something else, but yeah, can we yeah. get you to use it?" And I and it just made me think of your book, and I'm and I'm just. It, it was just uh, a kind of uh, one of those sort of aha moments of, oh, here's how it works. And the doctor just had to kind of brush off the sales rep and just, yeah, okay, we're, we're, we're doing that, but we don't really like it so much. We're fine with just using it for this other thing. And uh, Well, that's tremendous that you saw that because, you know, I think a lot of doctors, certainly in the past, were a lot, um, you know, more open to being, to listening to these people and hearing their pitch. But I think... There's been so much pressure now on healthcare and so much light shown on a lot of these um, unethical practices that what you see is far, uh, drug reps going after nurses or going into the billing office and um, you know not approaching a doctor who's very busy and more apt to brush them off lately, but actually going to some of the staff people to try and feed them wonderful dinners or, or treat them to a night out. So you know the practice is still there. Um, but it's just harder, I think, for us patients to see it. Yeah. Uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI and Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Kathleen Sharp, and we're talking about her book, Blood Feud, The Man Who Blew the Whistle on One of the Deadliest Prescription Drugs Ever. Would you say that the story in Blood Feud is an acute symptom of an overall disease of toxic corporatism where a Voracious appetite for ever-increasing profits trumps everything, including human life. Well, I don't know if it's an extreme example, but I can uh, point out to the fact that uh, Pfizer was recently um, 
settling charges of off-label marketing for $2.5 billion, that Eli Lilly, that Bristol Myers, that, um, you know, Shearing Plow, pretty much any company you can think of has made a huge settlement. And just last year, there was a record $10 billion in whistleblowing claims, mostly against healthcare companies that um, the government has reported. So, um, no, I don't, I think this sort of business is usual in mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical industry. What is unusual, or was at least in the 90s, are whistleblowers. And now you see much, much, you know, you see them popping up a lot more frequently. But then you have to step back again and realize uh, estimates of fraud in our healthcare system and Medicare and Medicaid is about $100 billion a year. So when you have settlements of $10 billion, that's still a long way to go to uh, recoup all of the money that we've been uh, robbed of, um, you know, through so-called legitimate companies. You know, I, I have this, this image in my mind of uh, these corporate boardrooms and, and they're making these decisions such as, okay, we're going to take this uh, Procrit and we're going to give people, what was it, the $40,000, 40,000 unit dose? Right, that was, mm-hmm. which was 33% higher than the approved dose. And turned out to be very deadly. So they're making this decision in this boardroom, and, and they're thinking of in terms of profits. And it's got to be somewhere in their mind that people are going to maybe die from this. How Do you think they just have a way of compartmentalizing that to where it's just like, maybe, maybe not, it's not really my responsibility well what i've heard is that it's a risk ratio uh decision that they're advised on by their attorneys and the way that works is that um, the risk involved in doing something illegally and being caught maybe 10 20 percent and if they are caught maybe they have to pay two to three billion dollars um and if their drug is attached to something like cancer, it's going to be hard for anyone to prove in a court of law, perhaps, with these great attorneys that they employ, that this person actually did die from the off-label uh, marketing of a drug. So when they weigh all of that, I think it makes a lot, to their minds, of business sense to go ahead and gun the engine and push the envelope and try and squeeze $80, 90000000000 billion out of a drug. And perhaps they don't think of this in terms of human death. What they think of is in terms of shareholder value. Mm-hmm. And it amazes me that Johnson & Johnson, which I think yesterday on the New York Times uh, front page, it was disclosed that they have been pushing faulty hip replacements to old people in Europe, even though they've known for at least a year that these did not work. And yet there was the corporate decision based on the risk ratio you know, factor that it was worth the money to continue to uh, fob off something that didn't work on people. So, um, unfortunately, this is sort of American capitalism. It's uber capitalism or extreme capitalism, and I think it's something that a lot of people are looking at changing. You know, do we have to be so uh, avaricious in the pursuit of profit? Yeah. Do we do? Maybe we need to restructure how we allow corporations to be corporations and that more uh, emphasis needs to be put on uh, when you talk about the the ratio of profit to loss but you know benefit to society versus profit right, yeah right. that, that has or to- how about we put some of these corporate executives who make the same decisions two or three times in a row how about we put them you know behind bars 
uh, three strikes and you're out. Uh, Medicare in the U.S. government does have the power to stop companies like Johnson & Johnson from participating in the Medicare program. So I think it's time that they start using the laws that are already on the books to really punish um, uh, repeat offenders like this. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I agree with that. Could we talk for a minute, Kathleen, about about your writing style? It, it's really, uh, you know, I've <laughs> praised this book so much because it, it was such Aww, a, a... That's so great, Robert. Yeah. No, I mean, it's well, just it's, like I wanted to pick it up and keep reading, and where's this going next? And it's like this thriller, but it's a, it's a nonfiction story. And, and how did you sort of develop that style? Well, I was influenced a lot by other thriller writers um, and also mystery writers. I live in Santa Barbara where uh, Ross McDonald, um, you know, this great um, uh, writer from the 50s and 60s uh, used to work, uh, Margaret Millar, uh, another wonderful and unsung uh, writer who's just very chilling in the way she approaches things. So here in this, uh, my neck of the woods, there's a lot of mystery and thriller writers who I really love. But what bothers me a lot about nonfiction is that a lot of it tends to be kind of boring. You know, it's almost like reading a a police report or a a blotter. And so what I tend to do is kind of just research my heart out for about a year and try and lay the groundwork with documents and interviews and quotes and kind of put the bones of the uh, story down. And then when I go over it time and time again, you know, I'll call back my sources, um, or I'll go online to find out what a hotel looked like in 1998, or what if there was a full moon on the night that Dean and uh, Mark were out um, taking their documents to be Xeroxed. So then I sort of, you know, set the scene and, and the colors, and I had a lot of photographs to work from. And I try and write like a real whodunit, or a real mystery, or a thriller. And it makes it more fun for me as a writer, but I also hope that it really draws in the reader to where they kind of can't believe that this stuff happens, but it's real and it's impacting them right now. So it has not only heart, but a lot of brain and muscle power behind it. And um, I guess I kind of want to write in a way that my brother, a longshoreman, will want to pick up the book too. Yeah, it's it's one of those things because I, I'm one of those people that will read a book that's just just the facts and uh, and will you know kind of wonky and all that. I, I I'm fine with that kind of stuff. And and the, but then it's like when I get a book like this, it has all of that. But then you're being drawn along in this story and you're being you're feeling like you're there and you're you're identifying with the characters and uh, you. So I just yeah, it's great to hear your your process and how how you got there. Well, and, and also I think it's important to impart information and education and and things that I learned about the secret world of pharmacology. You know, if a reader will stick with me for those pages, and every now and then you have to spoon feed them some kind of the um, pharmacology 101. If they'll do that, then they they get some information that they can use in their everyday life. And to me, that's like wow. You know, if I can do that and entertain people, it's the sweet spot. Yeah, definitely. And you've definitely hit that. And uh, let's. Uh, we've got just a couple minutes left. Anything you want to make sure that we know about before uh, we uh, uh, well, turn it over today? The, yeah, there's. You know, I've been speaking a lot at um, universities and uh, uh, groups and on the radio and wonderful programs like your own. And the thing that I'm hearing from people is that. There's this big movement, you know, really gaining um, speed. And that collective sort of voice 
um, that I think Duxbury had and that Glellen and that you are also kind of amplifying with this your radio show is that we all can affect change. And I think if all of us have access to health care, if all of us can take care of our children and not have to die because we don't have health care, then that's a huge um, sort of incentive. And one of the things that Mark told me in the way that I closed the book is that, you know, he's done everything he could. Um, he died from poor health, and now he was sort of passing on the baton to the rest of us. And I just feel like this whole collective call to action that he left us with is something that can really succeed in kind of overthrowing this corporate tyranny that we've been under the thumb of for so many years with, um, you know, this profit-making system at the expense of people's health. So I would just sort of share that call to action to uh, your listeners. All right, and that is uh, said quite well in the book. You you just feel that at reading this book. And uh, Kathleen Sharp, I want to uh, thank you so much for spending the time with us again today. All the best with the movie deal, and uh, keep us posted on where the legal battles are uh, going with all of this. Well, I sure will, and thank you so much, Robert. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Okay, well, thank you for that, and uh, you have a wonderful uh, rest of the day, and we'll be talking to you. Okay. Take Bye-bye. Care. Bye now. All right, yeah, Kathleen Sharp. Again, uh, that book is Blood Feud, The Man Who Blew the Whistle on One of the Deadliest Prescription Drugs Ever. You will not be sorry if you uh, pick this book up. Well, you'll, you'll get angry. You'll get angry, but in, in, a, in a good way because it's going to cause you to uh, act. All right, so that wraps it up here on Out the Rabbit Hole for today. Let's see, uh, in about three minutes, we'll be turning it over to Matt Kaplan, who will present to you Counterspin and Planetary Radio. Always good stuff. I'll remind you once more, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at kuci.org. You can also uh, catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rg larson all right that concludes out the rabbit hole with me robert larson here on kuci 88.9 fm in irvine also on the web at kuci.org i will be talking to you next week